This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Anti-corruption crusader, private citizen, Norman Traversy is here in Hour One. He's taking on the judicial system and the prime minister, and he's launching a private prosecution case against Justin Trudeau and several of his advisors, alleging obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice stemming from the SNC-Lavalin affair back in February of 2019. And Norman has become quite the folk hero. Uh, Perhaps you've seen recent uh, YouTube videos where he's been interviewed on Parliament Hill. Uh, When I heard about Norman and what he's doing, I thought it was time for this story to go mainstream. And I think it's it's very important that you hear what he has to say and that he should be afforded a mainstream broadcast platform. Coming up in hour two. Dr. Jerome Corsi will be here. Jerome, you may recall, was caught up in the Robert Mueller investigation of Russian collusion, and he was indicted for lying to the FBI, along with Roger Stone. Jerome refused to plead guilty for a lesser sentence, and the charges were not pursued after the Mueller investigation wrapped up, concluding there was, in fact, no Russian collusion. Uh, Jerome uh, later filed a federal lawsuit accusing Robert Mueller, the special investigator, of illegally searching his phone records and leaking grand jury information. Attorneys for uh, Jerome demanded $100 million in general and compensatory damages and $250 million in punitive damages from Mueller, the Justice Department, the National Security Agency, the FBI, and the CIA. He now has a new ebook out called The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the presidency, and he'll be here in hour two to discuss this attempted coup d'etat. Before we get rolling, registration is now open for my live web conference on digital consciousness, and that's happening Thursday, July the 9th from 10.30 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern. 
Digital Consciousness featuring Jim Elvidge, the author of The Universe Solved and Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. This is an exclusive web conference with limited access. We're only admitting 100 people. It'll take place via Zoom. You can go to strangeplanet.ca and under events and appearances, click on web conferences. All the details are there and the link to register. Again, Thursday, July 9th from 10.30 p.m. to 12 a.m. Eastern. Digital Consciousness with yours truly, along with author Jim Elvidge, strangeplanet.ca. And under events and appearances, click on web conferences. All the details are there. There's a link to register. And there's also a frequently asked questions section to help you with any technical issues you may have using Zoom. I also want to mention that my new free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS devices is now available in the App Store. This means you can now stream Conspiracy Unlimited from your mobile device. And for Conspiracy Unlimited Plus members, you can stream premium content from your mobile device as well. The Conspiracy Unlimited app for Android users is coming very, very soon. Stay tuned. This is a powerful story, one you're not likely to hear about or read about in the mainstream media in this country. Norman Traversy is a retired firefighter living in Ottawa who decided to take on what he sees as rapid corruption in government and in the courts in this country. He's launched a private prosecution case against the Prime Minister, and he's starting to attract the attention and support of retired RCMP officers and others. And I think you're going to want to pay special attention this hour to what Norman has to say and what he's trying to do. Norman Traversy, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I am swell. How are you? Terrific. Let's take a few minutes to introduce you to my listeners. Some of them may have seen some of your YouTube videos that have gone viral. Some people may be very familiar with the work that you're doing. Others may never have heard of you before. Let's begin by introducing you to my listeners. I was a Mississauga firefighter, and I'm proud to say I was a good one. I got injured several times on the job, a number of concussions. I had a fallen through a floor in a fire, and I also had a roof collapse on my head. Ended up with uh, permanent spinal damage. And uh, they put me in public education in the fire department. So I was still in the fire department, but I wasn't fighting fires. And uh, that was a good job. And uh, 14 years ago, I was driving to work. I lived in the town of Aaron, and I was driving down the road to... uh, uh, go to work from Aaron to Mississauga, and uh, I came across a truck wreck. And it was a truck on its side, a fully loaded gravel truck, lying on its side in the ditch, leaking fuel. And uh, after a couple of attempts, I managed to rescue the guy, the driver. Uh, he didn't have a scratch on him. He had dropped his cell phone. He was trying to pick it up, and that's why he drove off the road. And uh, I was uh, injured, re-injured my, my uh, spinal injury. Uh, rescuing the guy and uh, went home, called the fire department, told them what had happened and saw my doctor a couple of days later. And she uh, said, you've re-injured your your back injury and uh, gave me painkillers, told me to stay home. And uh, 
the fire chief called WSIB, Workplace Safety Insurance Board, because I'd applied for uh, benefits after being injured. And he said I was no longer a real firefighter and that he didn't expect his people to perform rescues off duty because I was driving to work. I was in uniform, has 25 years experience as a firefighter, and I rescued someone from a truck wreck and <laughs> they threw me under the bus. The fire Disgusting. chief, in other words, the fire chief interceded and didn't want you to receive workers' comp because you were officially off-duty, even though you were on your way to work, you were in uniform, and you rescued someone. What difference would it have made to him if you would receive workers' compensation? Um, Because uh, the city of Mississauga, I think they're called Level 1, they uh, directly pay workers' compensation uh, rather than the board pay it. And... uh, after a few months, I wanted to come back to work, and they wouldn't let me, and because I had, I was a witness in a sexual harassment complaint. A woman that I worked with was being harassed, and she asked if I would, uh, you know, tell the investigation about uh, what I'd witnessed, and I said I would, and uh, that investigation never took place, and <laughs> that's why they they wanted me gone after 14 months off work without any income. I was living off the equity in my house. They finally let me come back to work, and I was escorted to a little four-foot-by-five-foot cubicle, and they put a shower curtain across it because I had PTSD. That was their solution for a firefighter with PTSD was uh, humiliate him with a shower curtain. And they had a professionally made sign that I still have that said, Norman Travers T. Uh, caged animal. I complained to my union, the union boss, he said, what do you care? You're getting paid every two weeks. After uh, three months of this treatment, the city's doctor told me to stay home, that I was getting my PTSD was getting worse because of this treatment. And so they fired me. And uh, now I'm a man on a mission. Guess what was it last August? I saw a video of uh, Brenda Lucky, new commissioner of the RCMP, and she was wearing her red surge uniform and saluting, and there were Mounties behind her, and they were all saluting. And while she was saluting, Justin Trudeau walked up to her, gave her a hug, and kissed her on both cheeks. He does that and a I lot. Thought, he does that a lot. <laughs> I thought, what contempt this man has for the person and for the office. Let me just stop you there. So after being fired from the Mississauga Fire Department, were you eligible for a pension? <laughs> They, because I'd uh, done legal action against the city, OMERS, the Ontario Municipal Employee Retirement Savings Fund, refused to release my pension because I had taken legal action. And there was a, a major battle about that. I eventually got a payout. Uh, I don't have a pension. And uh, they got rid of me <laughs> because... Well, one, I rescued someone while I was on my way to work, and apparently I should have driven right by. My life would be completely different if I had, but that's unthinkable. It's also against the law, against the Highway Traffic Act, to uh, drive by an accident without rendering all possible help. Right. In any case, uh, I thought, this country is so corrupt, through and through. It's corrupt on every level of government, and seeing Trudeau did what he did, and the whole SNC-Lavalin, Jody Wilson-Raybould affair. And I said, the RCMP is not going to investigate. I actually went to RCMP headquarters and wrote them a letter 
about the uh, corruption and SNC-Lavalin, and uh, they refused to investigate. Okay, let me just stop you there, because we need to explain what the SNC-Lavalin affair is all about. And so, SNC-Lavalin, this big Quebec-based engineering company, was charged with, I guess, bribing Libyan officials in Libya. That's correct. And so, they were going to be prosecuted under Canadian, under federal law, and it is alleged that the Prime Minister or some of his officials interceded on SNC-Lavalin's behalf and pressured then-Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to drop the charges, ostensibly to save Canadian jobs, right? Uh, Jody Wilson, well, one, uh, they were also bribing Gaddafi's sons in Montreal. Uh, I think they spent over a million dollars on liquor and prostitutes and uh, also bought uh, them a yacht SNC Lavalin did. And uh, when you do that, that's called human trafficking. So it also occurred in Canada. Uh, the office of the prosecutor, uh, who works with Jody Wilson-Raybould, recommended that charges be laid. And Jody Wilson-Raybould went along with the recommendation given to her. And then she was pressured by Trudeau and by Butt and others to drop the whole thing as Trudeau said, to save jobs. So that's okay if it's going to save Quebec jobs. Not only was she pressured, she was fired. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Now, So that's a little more than pressure. And so that's correct. And then the, the status of this is that the, mm-hmm. the ethics commissioner at the time, Dion, said that these actions by Trudeau and his officials had violated Section 9 of the Conflict of Interest Act, I think you mentioned that Raybould was fired. She was later fired, but she first she resigned as Attorney General, and also uh, former Treasury Board President Jane Philpott also resigned, and then they were both uh, kicked out of uh, caucus. That's correct. Right. And there were also uh, five uh, ex-Attorney Generals, and I think one serving Attorney General, that wrote and said that uh, he should be charged. And his principal secretary, Trudeau's principal secretary, Gerald Butts, resigned from his role, uh, although he later came back. Michael Wernick uh, stepped down as clerk of the Privy Council. So, again, the uh, the Ethics Commissioner, Dion, said there was a conflict of interest here. The RCMP said that they were going to examine the matter. This all happened just weeks before the federal election. What happened, though, was the RCMP's investigation has stalled because they were denied cabinet meeting minutes records records yeah. so that's where we're at right now so you decided to do what at that point at that point i was uh, watching the proceedings and i thought this is thoroughly corrupt and it was uh, trudeau kissing the the commissioner of the rcmp that was the last straw for me and uh, i am a student of history and i know about the magna carta and the Magna Carta is an ancient document where they got King John at Runnymede to sign that no one, including the king, is above the law. And that is a very uh, powerful document. And I knew about something called a private prosecution. Before they had police forces, uh, individuals were expected to uphold the law. And if necessary, make an arrest. And if necessary, prosecute someone in the name of the king, in the name of the crown. 
and that's still in effect to this day. I think it's Section 507 of the Criminal Code. Yes, you are enables, correct, yes. Okay, that enables someone to do that. And I invoked that. So I went to Ottawa City Hall. I had drawn up the documents about uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, corruption and uh, obstruction of justice and uh, also to uh, collude to obstruct justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice. And I wrote that up on uh, the, you know, Ottawa court uh, documents on their forms. I walked down there, walked into the JP's office. This would be late August of last year and uh, handed that over. He says, uh, go for a coffee. Obviously, I've got to have a meeting. And I came back half hour later and he said, do you swear that everything in this document is true to the best of your knowledge? And I put my hand on the Bible, and I swore. He said, your pre-oncot hearing is on September the 4th. Okay, just a minute, let me back up here. So, now this was filed at the Court of Justice in Ottawa? Yes, Ontario Court of Justice. Okay, explain what pre-oncot hearing means. Okay, pre-oncot means that they're going to decide whether the matter should go forward based on the evidence that I produce. And it is held in camera in that it's just me and a judge and a, a, a crown attorney. And, the, and accused, what, the accused in this case, Justin Trudeau, he's not required in a private prosecution to be in attendance, correct? That's correct. He doesn't even know about it. Because if they throw it out, then, you know, it's as if it had never happened. And at, and at that point, after you had filed this, this motion... Did you have evidence with you for the judge to examine, or or does that come later? No, I did have evidence. Uh, I had uh, a lot of written evidence, and I also had uh, recordings of some of the phone calls that were made to Miss uh, Wilson Raybould, and I had those on thumb drive. And uh, I was there, uh, showed up with my evidence, and I had a witness come with me. Uh, who had also done successful private prosecutions? This is Gary McHale. Uh, Gary McHale. I want yeah, to talk Gary about. Mc- I want to talk about him in yep. a second. I just want to get back to the evidence for a minute, uh, Norman. Right. So, so we, th- Gary. Okay, Gary had come uh, to Ottawa, and I put him up in a hotel and paid his expenses, and he spent a, a couple of evenings coaching me because I was a firefighter. I'm not a lawyer and uh, showing me what evidence to produce, what was valid. And uh, we went to the went to the courtroom that we were scheduled to meet at, and we were a half hour early, of course. And they said, oh, the judge is sick today. They only had one judge in the Ottawa courthouse for a matter concerning Justin Trudeau. And uh, they said, uh, your, your next hearing is gonna be on October the 7th. And so I got that in writing, October the 7th, uh, room, courtroom 14. Okay, let me just jump in here. Let me just jump in. I want to pick up on some points. So in terms of the evidence, and you said you had several boxes full of evidence, you had thumb drives containing recorded phone calls. All this evidence that you had, this was gathered how? This is is evidence that was already in the public eye and in newspapers? Yes, it was already in the public eye, a statement given by... Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould in Parliament on the floor. Uh, other documents, the letters from the Attorney Generals, uh, the stuff from the Ethics Commission. Uh, there was part one and part two 
because uh, he'd also accepted bribes from the Aga Khan, who then lobbied the Canadian government. And uh, we had evidence, and we just wanted the evidence looked at. Right, and this is the same evidence that the ethics commissioner would have looked at in rendering his decision that the, the prime minister had violated conflict of interest ethics. So that's correct. So all of this is in a number of boxes. It's given to the uh, the justice of the peace at the court of justice. I just wanted to spend a few minutes now talking about your helper here, Gary McHale. This is a, a political activist. Some people may recall he was involved in the Grand River land dispute. This was in Caledonia, Ontario, where an Aboriginal group were protesting at the uh, Douglas Creek estates that were about to be developed. They claimed it was their land. And uh, Gary McHale uh, was, I guess, trying to get the police to, to shut down the protest. In other words, to do their job. So this is how one of the ways that he sort of gained his notoriety. But he, you say that Gary McHale is considered one of Canada's foremost experts on private prosecutions. That's why you reached out to him, correct? That is correct. I, I didn't know the man. I, I managed to track him down. And he came up from where he lives, which is about a seven-hour drive. And uh, we got along well together, and we were quite confident. And uh, to find out that the judge is sick, and then it was rescheduled for October the 7th, and I brought Gary out again, and uh, we were prepped, even more prepped this time. And uh, we showed up at 9 o'clock for a scheduled 9.30 pre oncot hearing, room 14 of the Ottawa Courthouse. I also had three other... Uh, people there for moral support that were interested. And so there was a group of five of us. I tried the door at nine o'clock. It was locked. Normally, uh, for these things, you put the names of the people involved in the, in the hearing. So it should have said Traversy versus Trudeau on the door, and it didn't. We went to the front desk, and uh, there was no record of it on there either and uh, I was politely knocking on the door every couple of minutes and we stood there till after 10 o'clock and just after 10 o'clock the doors were unlocked the group of people went in and we went in and I don't know how but the clerk of the court uh, said you people will have to leave and obviously the, the clerk knew who I was who I'd never met before, and uh, we went and stood outside the door and waited. Okay, I'm going to jump in here, Norman, because uh, we're going into a break. We'll come back and get to the resolution of this uh, court date in just a moment. Norman Traversy filed a private prosecution case against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in just a moment. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. 
take a moment and visit my website, strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. It's been completely redesigned. It's much easier to navigate. I think you're going to love it. Strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom and you'll see Inner Sanctum. That's my free monthly newsletter. Click on that and register. Just your email. All I need is your email address, and then you'll start receiving Inner Sanctum every month for free, delivered right to your email inbox. And again, go to strangeplanet.ca, scroll to the bottom, and click on Inner Sanctum to register, and the July issue will be out very, very soon. We're back with Norman Traversy and his remarkable story. He is filing a private prosecution case against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, for obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice. Uh, this goes back to, uh, well, I guess about February of 2019, the SNC-Lavalin affair in which then-Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, says that she was uh, pressured to essentially withdraw prosecution from the uh, Montreal-based engineering giant, SNC-Lavalin, and she later resigned and then was later kicked out of the party caucus. The ethics commissioner ruled that the prime minister was in violation of conflict of interest ethics. The uh, matter was then uh, handed over to the RCMP for investigation. However, that has really gone nowhere because uh, they can't investigate without cabinet meeting minutes, and those are being withheld from the RCMP. And so enter Norman Traversy, who decided to take matters into his own hands and uh, initiate this private prosecution, which is allowed under the criminal code. If the police will not act or are not able to act, then a private citizen has a right to do so. And uh, he filed a motion before the, uh, the Court of Justice in Ottawa. So you arrive at the court for your hearing and you're basically locked out of the courtroom. Pick it up from there, Norman, if you could. Okay, uh, we waited. Uh, the five of us, and around 11 o'clock or so, uh, a well-dressed woman in a business suit carrying a bunch of books came out, and she looked like a lawyer. So uh, I approached her, and I said, do you know anything about the Traversy versus Trudeau matter? And she said, yes, that was dealt with first thing this morning. And I said, do you know what happened? She said it was stayed. And I said, "Uh, can you tell me why? And she said, you'll have to ask the Crown Attorney. You'll have to explain what stayed means. So if a case has been stayed, what is what does that mean? Dismissed? Delayed? What? Stayed means put on hold. Got it. it the matter can be reopened at any time. It means press pause. All right. But that, that was, was done. That was done with in your absence. Yes. It was out on then. OK, so we waited until noon. And no one came out. And uh, around noon, I went and tried the door. The door was unlocked and no one was in the room. They'd gone out the back way. They didn't want to face me. They'd gone out the back door. The Crown Attorney. The Crown Attorney and the judge and uh, I guess the uh, secretary or stenographer, whoever that is, the recorder, they'd all gone out the back way. So uh, I have a friend at the court who can get me transcripts. And I had that transcript uh, the same day. And the transcript uh, stated, uh, it started at uh, at 9.30 when it was supposed to start. I was outside the door knocking on the door while this went on. It lasted less than five minutes. And they stated for lack of evidence 
using what they called the McHale Principle. McHale Principle is named after Gary McHale. It's from the Supreme Court of Canada. And I had Gary McHale standing next to me, the guy the principle's named after. And uh, it was stayed for lack of evidence. Well, we had a crate full of evidence right outside that door. They didn't want to open that door. And that was uh, basically rigging the Canadian election because if this would have been able to go forward, no matter what, Trudeau would not have won. I mean, he'd have been in court. Okay, so let me just back up here and pick up on some important points. It was stayed at 9.30, even though your court appearance was for 10.30. No, my court appearance was for 9.30. 9.30. But you you showed up and you didn't get in until 10.30 because they locked the doors. I didn't get in. uh, Yeah, they locked the door. Okay, so... They couldn't have missed me knocking on that door. You know, I wasn't pounding on the door, but I was knocking. And they'd have heard that uh, during the proceeding, and it was stayed at 9.35, and, and which this... means it's put on hold. It hasn't been dismissed. It can be reopened, and I am going to reopen it. So uh, that's where we're at now. I've waited six months since that happened because I've been told that if I fell too soon after that, it would be considered vexatious. Right, but I just want to pick up on a point here. It was stayed in your absence. Can they do that? That's is that correct. is that legal? No, it's an obstruction of justice locking me out of a courtroom when I have a scheduled hearing. It's a blatant obstruction of justice by the Ontario uh, Court of Justice and by the Attorney General of Ontario because they don't do something like that without instructions from higher up. And so they said that the, that it was stayed due to lack of evidence, but had they looked at the evidence or was that with no, you? No, they had not. They had not looked at the evidence. That, that hearing was for me to present the evidence. That's my chance to say my story, present my evidence, and then they decide whether or not to go forward. And they did not look at my evidence. I never got to talk. It was a blatant obstruction of justice on the part of the Attorney General, the Ontario Court of Justice. Uh, I've got the name of the uh, judge that was there, and I've got the name of the Crown Attorney. And I will be charging them as well. But uh, this I can't believe this is happening in Canada. And uh, they, c- they cited the McHale principle. Again, this goes back to Gary McHale, political activist, who has been, I guess, involved in a, n- a number of private prosecutions you recruited him to assist you in this case do you know can you tell us what the McHale principle is what that refers to specifically it refers to the amount of evidence required for a matter to go forward uh i can't get very specific about it uh i haven't really you know researched it but that's what they quoted uh gary McHale successfully prosecuted the attorney general of ontario and won and he also successfully prosecuted Julian Fantino, commissioner of the OPP. And he won that one, too. So I figured he must know what he's doing. And that's why I recruited him. And uh, I just said, you're the boss. I'll do what you tell me to do. And uh, <laughs> they locked us out. And so then you went to the federal court. You yes, were looking for. The... Yeah, go ahead. I went to the federal court. And everything is walking distance from where I live. 
And uh, I went to the federal court. They gave me a form. I filled it out, brought it back, and said I hadn't done it right. And I, I ended up going back and forth about three times before they said it was okay. And this is a writ of mandamus that you received. I, I didn't receive it. Ah. Uh, I was requesting a writ of mandamus. And a writ of mandamus is just legal. Uh, it's Latin for uh, do your job, <laughs> or I demand. And uh, I was requesting that uh, from the federal court to instruct the Ontario Court of Justice to do their job. And what I got back from the federal court was uh, we have no jurisdiction over the Ontario Court of Justice, which I found bizarre. Uh, I then went to the Ontario, uh, not the Ontario, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, and a complaint with the Ontario the Canadian Human Rights Commission uh, that I'd been discriminated against and that I was not uh, given access to the uh, judicial system, and I put that in, and I got a letter, which I can provide, from the Canadian Human Rights Commission, stating that the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not apply in the Ontario judicial system. That sounds... That's what it said. And, <laughs> I mean, have you have you received any legal advice on, on that ruling? Is that true? Is that true? Apparently it is true. And that's that it, it only applies to federally regulated uh, businesses or enterprises or ministries. And the Ontario Court of Justice is, well, apparently Ontario is a separate country from Canada, <laughs> from from what I found out. Or so it would uh, seem. I, or so it does seem. And I went to Elections Canada in person, and I said, look, this is uh, election tampering by, uh, you know, protecting Trudeau from prosecution uh, just before the election, which obviously changed the result of the election. And uh, they they wouldn't touch it. They All won't right. go near the election. Norman, yeah. I've got to take another time out. We'll come back and uh, discuss further. Norman Traversy and his private prosecution case against Justin Trudeau fighting corruption in our courts right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrant from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Norman Traversy. So you got no satisfaction with the, uh, the Court of Justice. They stayed the case in your absence uh, which you have on legal authority is or legal advice is a, a criminal offense for that for the court to have done that it is obstruction of justice it's against the law uh, you sought remedy at the federal court seeking a writ of mandamus which basically would tell the court of justice to do their job the federal court said no it's not our jurisdiction you went to the uh, human rights council and they said they can't help you uh, because the uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not apply to the Ontario court system, correct? That's correct. All right, so what's next then? Well, this is what happened. Um, people saw what was going on 
And this network has organically grown from uh, just the occurrence uh, has got a lot of Canadians and Americans upset, very upset. And people are uh, offering their services. Uh, I've got a couple of investigators. Uh, I've got people that are putting me on the radio. I've got someone, uh, a company out west has designed a website for me called justiceforcanada.ca. And uh, they've done that. And uh, I've got all kinds of people helping me. I've got uh, forensic accountants that are looking into SNC-Lavalin. I've even got a retired two-star general down in the States that's helping me. Uh, President Trump knows what's going on. He's actually read documents about me. Uh, I know that because the general was there and handed him a couple of short documents which uh, President Trump read. He knows what's going on. He knows about what's going on with Trudeau. This is not going away. Uh, it's been just over six months. I'm going to refile, stating I have new evidence. Well, they haven't even looked at any evidence, so of course it's all going to be new. And the whole thing's going to start again. Uh, I, I, if they don't unstay it or resume, and I'll file a new prosecution. And I've got legal help making sure it's done properly, which I didn't have before. And there are a group of thousands of us and a lot of retired RCMP are really miffed about this. So I've got some retired RCMP helping me as well. Uh, it's not going to go away and we are going to win. And you're so also going. To, you're also going to take uh, legal action against the Justice of the Peace and the what the Crown Attorney who, at the yes. Court of Justice because they stayed the case in your absence, right? You're going to pursue that. They obstructed justice, and I'm also going to file a human rights complaint against the Attorney General of Ontario for denying me justice. And we'll see where that goes. Apparently, these are very effective going to the uh, Human Rights Tribunal. Just let's spend a, f- a few moments talking about this network that seems to be uh, growing around you. And people, again, they're seeing your videos and people interviewing you on YouTube. And and uh, I, I recently saw a, a woman interview you on uh, Parliament Hill uh, just maybe a week ago, a week and a half ago. Uh, and that, that video went viral. Now there is, I understand, a, a GoFundMe campaign that's um, sprung up. And um, But you mentioned some RCMP officers. And I understand that they are, they are writing briefs, uh, in other words, police-type documents uh, that, that will also yes, be presented at the court. Well, they're writing, they're writing uh, briefs for me, and they're making sure it's done properly. So it's going to have my name on the brief and my signature on it, but it's going to be drafted by retired RCMP officers, uh, so it's going to be uh, official-looking, anyways. And it won't be—it'll be correctly done because I've never written a brief, <laughs> right? But I have people that have. And you also so, have—you uh, have uh, some some independent 
investigators out west that are also working on your behalf, some grandmothers in Alberta? Yeah, I've got, I've got that. I've also got someone in Ontario, and it's grown. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of morphed to not just against uh, Trudeau, but against all the corruption that we've got in this country. It's, it, I mean, we're number 12 in the world for corruption. United States is 34 or something. You know, we're, we're getting more corrupt by the day. And it's because Trudeau's enabling this. So, uh, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got people all over. Uh, apparently the website is getting a lot of hits from Hong Kong. Hmm. And, uh, you know, those people are interested in liberty as well. Oh, I'll say. And, All right. Norman, I have to take another time out. We'll come back and uh, uh, finish up with Norman Traversy and his private prosecution case against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Back with more in a moment right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, Norman, give us the website again where people can find out more about uh, this case. It's justiceforcanada.ca. Not com, but .ca. Justiceforcanada.ca. And also there's a GoFundMe campaign. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, there's a link on there uh, from the uh, Justice for Canada one. But uh, if you just type in Justice for Trudeau and SNC-Lavalin, that's the name of the GoFundMe. But there's... There's a button on the justiceforcanada.ca website where you just click on that and it takes you directly there. Now, I'm assuming people like Gary McHale, you know, they're not working for free. Are you are you uh, ringing up large legal bills at this point? Yes, I'm ringing up large bills. Like uh, Gary McHale uh, is working for free. Ah, okay. And uh, But I'm paying all his expenses and I'm paying expenses of anybody else that's working on this. Well, I'm not. The GoFundMe is, which is the you know Canadians that have donated to this. So anything that needs to be done, uh, we're having a march on the uh, first of July, and we're going to need a sound system, things like that. Uh, we are going to gather uh, not at Parliament Hill because uh, Trudeau's canceled the uh, Dominion Day, but we're going to be gathering nearby. And then we're going to march when there's enough of us that the police won't be able to stop this. We're going to peacefully march to Parliament Hill, uh, stand in front of the uh, the flame and sing O Canada. And then we are going to march to the American Embassy, which is about four blocks away. And we're going to stand in front of the embassy and uh, I've already been to the American Embassy and I told them to expect uh, thousands of friendly people that are, are going to be there. And then the plan is for me to deliver a document to the American ambassador or whoever they send to the door and uh, outlining the corruption in Canada, uh, starting off with uh, Trudeau and his crimes and his corruption and uh, going through to all the other issues that I won't go into right now. But the reason we're doing that on Dominion Day is that uh, the USMCA, 
comes into effect. Right, that's the replacement for the North American Free Trade Act. Yes, and Section 27.5 of that uh, treaty regards corruption and that they are not to uh, trade with countries that are corrupt and that any corruption that comes to to view will be investigated. So I, it's my belief that that gives the FBI and the Mexican National Police the right to investigate uh, what's been going on up here, including with SNC-Lavalin. And that's the plan. So... <laughs> It, they they would be violating uh, this brand new treaty if they didn't investigate or at least get the at RCMP to investigate and get back to the FBI. And that was put in specifically by President Trump. And he's the one that uh, spearheaded getting that in there. So right. That's, right. that's the plan. Now, in, in the meantime, you have friends that are retired RCMP officers. What are they telling you about the official RCMP investigation that has been stalled because of uh, basically cabinet privilege? In other words, they're not going to, the cabinet, the liberal Trudeau cabinet is not going to hand over documents uh, to the RCMP. They're claiming privilege. So where is the RCMP investigation at? Is Are they basically going to shut it down or what's happening? What, what I was told by these retired RCMP officers, there never was an investigation. It, it never even got started. And that they're using that as an excuse, as a way out. Fascinating. Yeah, there never was one. And, you know, Brenda Lucky would have shut that. Well, she didn't allow it to start. The commissioner so, uh, of the RCMP commissioner, Brenda Lucky, who uh, Trudeau hugged and kissed while she saluted him, you're saying that you're told that she would not allow that investigation to take place. That's what I've been told. So why do you think... It never even got started. Why do you think you have retired RCMP officers coming to aid and assist you? What What do they know? What do they tell you about what's happening inside the the RCMP and inside the criminal justice system in this country? What I've been told is that when you get to a certain level in the RCMP or the OPP, uh, you are no longer an honest person. And these are, these are people that were honest, these guys that have been in touch, and ladies that have been in touch with me. And uh, they're, they're telling me things, but that's, that's hearsay, isn't it? But that's what I've been told. So Brenda Lucky, I've been told, has absolutely no credentials for the job she's doing. And just give me the timeline then again. What's after July 1st? After you deliver the uh, the briefs to the uh, U.S. Embassy alleging corruption, and hopefully the FBI will then be forced under the provisions of the USMCA, they will be uh, forced under Section 27.5 to investigate or uh, ask the RCMP to investigate. Let's say that doesn't go anywhere, or that may be a long and drawn-out affair. You're In the meantime, you're going to go back to the Court of Justice? That's correct. I will. I'll go back to the Court of Justice. And this time when I go back, there won't be five of us. There'll be dozens. And uh, we'll file it. Uh, you know, they, they don't allow cameras in there, but uh, there are lots of sneaky ways of getting cameras in there. And we'll have the whole thing videoed. Uh, you know, I've got a number of people in the Ottawa area that can put together YouTube videos. They're going to have to do something. 
Is this alleged corruption, is this unique to the liberal government under Trudeau, or is this, according to your RCMP contacts, has this been going on for some time? It's been going on for decades. I mean, we can, we can talk about the Avro Arrow, right? Sure, sure. I mean, that's, that's very similar, isn't it? Large corporations. And, uh, you know, they, they bulldoze those planes. Well, that was under the orders of uh, Diefenbaker, wasn't it? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. It teach them a lesson. <laughs> so, so we used to have a, a major uh, airplane building uh, industry based in Malton in Mississauga. And now the only thing they've got left is a couple of planes mounted. <laughs> How, how do you see that as as a parallel to what's happening right now? I'm not sure I follow the uh, the example. I'm saying that the government and big business interacting. So SNC Lavalin, uh, you know, they got tens of thousands of jobs, and uh, if they would have been prosecuted successfully, then they would not have been able to uh, bid for any jobs with the Canadian government for ten years. So that was what was at stake. They'd have been out of business in Canada for 10 years. And that that's huge. Right, right. But then they shouldn't be buying yachts for dictators and buying prostitutes. With That's human trafficking. Indeed. All right, again, Norman, the website and the GoFundMe uh, campaign. Give us the details. Justiceforcanada.ca and Justice for Trudeau and SNC Lavalin is the GoFundMe. And uh, we're proceeding on this. Uh, it's not going to go away. It's going to be back in the uh, Court of Justice. It's going to be in the Ontario uh, Human Rights uh, Tribunal. And uh, whatever other method I can use. And in the meantime, there'll be a big protest on uh, July 1st, uh, marching towards Parliament Hill and then on to the U.S. Embassy. How many people are you expecting? Now, this is from the people. I'm not the organizer. Uh, but I will be there, and we're going to have a number of people speak. So but we've got a stage, uh, a sound system. Uh, we're not supposed to be doing this, but we are going to do it. And uh, a number of uh, well-known people are going to be speaking, and I'm going to give a short speech and read the preamble to the, the document I'm going to be delivering. And it's going to be very peaceful, but from the people that I've been talking to that are organizing this, uh, I mean, we're even organizing food trucks, that uh, they're expecting well over 5,000. All right, Norman. Well, good luck. And um, I'd like to check in with you after July 1st and uh, get an update if that's possible. Oh, absolutely it's possible. Norman, thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. Dr. Jerome Corsi is next, discussing the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency. Stay tuned. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome. 
Jerome Corsi this hour discussing the plot to take down the Trump presidency. Just a reminder, we're not live streaming on our YouTube channel tonight. However, the YouTube live stream returns next week. But the audio from this radio program will be uploaded to the Strange Planet YouTube channel in a day or two. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Carlos Cagina is my technical producer. Investigative journalist Jerome Corsi is here to discuss the operation to bring down the Commander-in-Chief, a slow-moving coup d'etat engineered by a coterie of the American elite and the deep state. The plot officially began July 31st, 2016, with a counterintelligence investigation that the FBI opened to probe Russian infiltration of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. But... The Bureau never followed any Russians. In fact, it was an operation to sabotage Trump, the candidate, then president-elect, and finally the presidency. The conspirators included political political operatives, law enforcement, and intelligence officials, and the press. After surviving the Russia hoax, the Ukraine hoax, and impeachment, the deep state and the left are now seizing upon the coronavirus pandemic and recent protests, rioting, looting, and racial unrest in one last-ditch effort to bring down the Trump presidency. Dr. Jerome Corsi received a Ph.D. from Harvard University in political science. He's written many books and articles and is an expert on political violence and terrorism. In March of 2005, Dr. Corsi helped found and launch the Iran Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit educational and charitable organization established to educate the public about the Islamic Republic of Iran and to promote freedom in the region. He's the author of a number of several New York Times bestselling books, including The Obama Nation, America for Sale, Why Israel Can't Wait, The Great Oil Conspiracy. Who Really Killed Kennedy, Hunting Hitler, Killing the Deep State, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt, and his latest, The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. Jerome Corsi, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be back with you. Thank you. It's been a while since we talked. I think the last time I had you on the program, you were writing about uh, the hunt for Hitler. So that tells you how long it's been. I just want to play... It's been a while. It has been indeed. I just want to play some really quick catch-up for my Canadian listeners. And I want to go back to your book, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. For my Canadian audience, just explain briefly how you got caught up in that perjury trap, along with Roger Stone, in terms of possible connection to uh, WikiLeaks. Just explain how that all went down. Well, I was at that time a reporter for WorldNet Daily, and I had been working with Roger Stone, who was working with the campaign. And in uh, July and August 2016, I took a trip to Italy. It was our 25th wedding anniversary, and I had time. I figured out on my own that uh, Julian Assange at that time had Podesta's emails, and he was going to release them in October. And I told this to Roger and to several others, and, of course, the Mueller team thought I had a connection, direct connection to Assange that could have then been given to Stone, and this would have been the Russian collusion where <clears throat> Trump's campaign would have coordinated with Assange when to release those emails. But I didn't have that connection at all. I just figured it out on my own. And the, the Mueller prosecutors wouldn't believe that because I figured it out precisely. Uh, I pretty much knew what would be in these emails. I've been studying Podesta a long time and uh, could predict how they would be used in October and just a few at a time. So they, when I refused to give them a name because I didn't have a name to connect to Assange, 
they said, well, they were going to charge me with perjury and we get you to forget a few emails and, and, and I would go to prison for 25 years, be tried in, by a jury in Washington, D.C. that would hate me and I'd be convicted and I'd spend the rest of my life in prison. And I basically told them that uh, I, if that's what they wanted to do, go ahead, but I was not going to swear before God and this federal judge to a crime I didn't commit. And they never indicted me. And I think my refusal to be pressured, I, I think they were suborning perjury. They were trying to get me to lie. I think they knew it. Uh, was uh, This, I think, was them. They were the criminals, the prosecutors, and I was never indicted. So uh, I basically won that one by telling the truth. Roger Stone, I believe, is supposed to report to prison June 30th, where he faces 40 months now, given the coronavirus outbreak in prisons, he's fearful that this could be a death sentence. What can you tell us about Roger's situation right now? Well, Roger, I mean, his situation, I, I think he, I, I always felt that the prosecution was uh, completely politically motivated because many people, it, you know, James Clapper, director of national intelligence, list goes on, lied to Congress. And uh, Roger, uh, I think, basically would have, if had he been opposing Donald Trump, would have been excused from this. So I think it was clearly a political uh, indictment and conviction of Roger. The jury hated him, like the same thing Mueller threatened me with, and he was convicted. So I don't know whether he'll get a pardon or go to prison, but I think it's completely, it shows how justice in the United States has been weaponized and politicized under the Obama administration. And those same prosecutors are still in the Department of Justice under uh, Attorney General Barr. Let's move ahead now to the recent book, The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. This is available as an e-book, correct? Is it coming out in hard copy as well? Yeah, there's going to be an e-book. Uh, it's not, I'm doing more e-books now because they're so current. And you can download them immediately. By the time I'd have to get a hard book, which would, you know, hardcover would be six months or more. And the bookstores are closed anyway. So it's a uh, Corsi Nation, C-O-R-S-I Nation dot com, my website. And this book is the, the, the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency. And it's, it's been doing quite well and I think is extremely timely. And, uh, I, I really do lay out that this is a systematic attempt, a coup d'etat, to remove Donald Trump from the White House. And it's planned and orchestrated, and I've really gone through chapter and verse as to how it's been implemented, the same way that the same kind of hard-left group, um, deep staters, globalists, Soros involved, uh, conducted the Arab Springs to destabilize governments in northern Africa in 2011, uh, the Maidan uprising in Ukraine, in 2014, and now they're taking these techniques here to the United States and trying to destabilize, us, uh, weaken the United States, destroy the Constitution, but their primary objective is to have Donald Trump removed from the presidency. A sort of a new color revolution. You, yes. In the foreword of the book, you give thanks to Boris, who is a semi-regular fixture on your program, Corsi Nation. Just tell us a little bit about who Boris is. 
Well, Boris is a uh, was Russian-Ukrainian Jew. He had a group that was providing him information. They were very good. I could validate all their information, and it wasn't classified, but it was really putting the puzzle pieces together. Uh, I think that group, I think Boris is now done for the time being. These people come and go. I've had um, many different groups that have helped me over the years, and they only last a while. So Boris was useful in writing that book, but I think Boris is now not going to be operative with the same group or certainly not in touch with me. And as you point out on your program, you don't want to deal with classified information. I mean, that that just opens up a whole can of worms. But right. uh, how did you, can you maybe walk me quickly through the process of how you vetted Boris and decided that he was credible? Oh, well, it was simply a matter of, for instance, a um, couple of things. Boris would say, here's events that happened and explain them in a way that was not the mainstream media narrative. And I go back and research and find that he was, in fact, correct. There was validation, for instance, on things of the various operatives, James Comey and the others during the Operation Crossfire hurricane. Uh, Boris seemed to pretty much know who was doing what. And again, through publicly available information, the transcripts, I could go in and validate it. It was just these were points that were very detailed. and Most people, including me, might not have occurred to see the significance of these events the first time. And then he would say, well, this is going to happen, or this is on, this is in play. He told me weeks before Secretary of Defense Esper came out and was insubordinate and said he would not use troops, was unwilling to, even at President Trump, invoke the Insurrection Act because he didn't want to violate the free speech rights of the protesters. And uh, I was not looking at these as peaceful protests. Uh, Boris warned me that Esper was not on board with Trump uh, two or three weeks before it happened. And so then when it happened, it really confirmed the information I'd been given. Do you have a sense of who uh, Boris is? I mean, is he intelligence? Is he simply sort of a, a deep throat type character who has sources that are well connected? Who, who is this character? Well, he, he was actually, I knew exactly who he was, but I have not, I mean, he, he's not a intelligence. He's never worked for the government of any country. Uh, he is a U.S. citizen now. He was born in Ukraine, Russia, in that area and lived there for many years, uh, but now is a U.S. citizen, and he doesn't have any special qualifications. His group, I'm not even sure he knew who his group was. They communicated with him in various codes, and he got the information, and then he tried to disseminate it. He would often even give it to the government, FBI, or to write emails to various government officials, and the the group uh, had been following me, evidently, for some time especially after, I guess, the Mueller incidents, and saw that I was effective, effectively communicating. I've been doing this now since 2004. I've written 25 books in that time, and I have actually changed history with some of them. The Certainly the first, which was co-authored with John O'Neill, the Swift Boat book, Unfit for Command against John Kerry, and Kerry lost that election. I think the book had an impact. Uh, many, many other books. Uh, I've been writing about the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America under George W. Bush and 
Uh, eventually that was closed down because I didn't want to see the globalism create a North American union. I mean, I've, over and over again, I've written books that have had an impact on history. And I think this group realized it and wanted uh, to help Donald Trump stay in office. And so, um, you know, I've intervened. I've a couple of times been, I've been doing tweets and the like. I wanted to see Benjamin Netanyahu stay in power in uh, in Israel. And I basically was able to communicate a lot of things that I knew about what Obama had done to pay for, put operatives in Israel to um, to try to destroy Netanyahu. And so, you know, I've, I've been able to make an impact at different times, and I think the group recognized that and wanted to share information with me so I could uh, make an impact on the public policy, hopefully in their view and in my view, to save President Trump's presidency from this coup attempt, which is ongoing. There was a New Yorker a magazine article that the writer said that Roger Stone is the progenitor and Jerome Corsi is the expositor of Donald Trump's worldview. Aside from the rest of the article, which was kind of a hit piece, how do you feel about that descriptor? Well, I've never claimed that I'm speaking for Donald Trump. I mean, I'm, I articulate policy positions and analysis that are my own, and that many times they're in accord with Donald Trump. But I've not spoken to Donald Trump since he's been president. Uh, I've known him for about 40 years in New York, but it was always a very professional, kind of cordial relationship. I was often, I had a career in international banking and working with banks in the United States. And for a couple of years when he owned the hotel, I was virtually a full-time VIP resident of the Plaza Hotel. So, I mean, I got to meet Donald Trump and speak with him, but, um, and we, you know, maintained a kind of a cordial relationship through those years, but I'm not a close confidant. I don't advise Donald Trump, and I don't claim to speak for him. In the book, you raise a very interesting question. I think many of us have asked ourselves, and no doubt the president has asked himself this, and the first lady and all the members of the Trump family, and that is, why would he consider ever running for president after all of this? It's a unusual thing. I mean, I've known Trump was going to was thinking about running for president for maybe 30 years and uh, clearly Roger Stone was an influence in that because Roger had always believed that Trump had the capability to be president and win run for president and win and Roger had been an advisor to Donald Trump a political advisor on and off for many years uh, and I, I think Donald Trump always felt like it was a destiny or uh, that he had a uh, somehow or other was meant to be president and uh finally decided i guess just to do it uh he you know several times had tentatively said i'm going to run for president or actually made some initial attempts to run for president but in 2015 he was very serious about that and decided that i think at that point in his life he was either going to do it then or it wasn't going to happen and so I'm not sure Donald Trump even expected to win, even on election night. I think it was a surprise to everyone, including to Donald Trump. But um, he did manage to communicate with the people. And uh, why he wants to put up with all this grief, uh, he's clearly at odds with the, you know, the deep state globalists who in the United States want to see us go into a uh, international new world order, uh, want to get rid of the Constitution. And the Democrats in the United States have moved to become 
pretty much out, out you know, outspoken socialists. And uh, you get the Black Lives Matter, which is clearly a Maoist group. And uh, we, we have quite a lot of leftist influence, and the globalists, even in the Washington establishment, uh, the Obama had weaponized the Department of Justice, the FBI, uh, the IRS. Uh, the bureaucracy is very comfortable in Washington. They are they've positions where they largely can't be fired. Uh, the they even with spouses, one takes a position in one department, and they go up in the ladder, changing positions. They are easily in and out of government, working for law firms or consulting organizations or lobbyists. And Donald Trump comes in and he's disruptive to this game. And uh, I don't think that the establishment liked it, of course, that challenged their economic interests and their cozy position in the power structure of the United States. And so Donald Trump, with his America First agenda, was a natural enemy to these people. You say that the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency began the moment he descended the escalator in June of 2015 at the Trump Tower to announce his candidacy. Who was behind the plan from that early time period? I mean, the moment he announced this plan was already being hatched. By whom? Well, I think it started in the intelligence community. I think it was largely John Brennan and uh, working together with British intelligence and the Five Eyes, and you know, finally Italian intelligence. I think was involved and Australian intelligence, and these internationalists uh, started to say, you know, Donald Trump was a threat to interests in Great Britain. He was in favor of Brexit, pulling out of the EU. He um, strongly criticized the uh, immigration policies that were in the EU, allowing so many of the refugees from the Middle East to come in and change the fundamental culture of Europe. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, was, I think, a threat even to Europe and saying things like pulling out of NATO. And these were issues that, uh, again, Europe had moved in such a globalist direction with the EU, and Great Britain was on the verge, if you remember, the actual Brexit vote kind of prefigured our election and that it happened and no one expected Great Britain to vote to pull out of the EU. That's to succeed, it did. And then just, you know, it was followed by Trump winning. I think we are experiencing a a reaction against this globalism and outsourcing and losing of jobs and the um, opening of borders and the loss of national identity. I think these are challenging to a lot of traditional beliefs, and our Constitution is founded on a set of very traditional uh, Christian Judeo, you know, Judeo-Christian principles. And our founders were saying very clearly that if we weren't a moral people with a belief in God, the system would not work. And I think that the left has gone so far in a kind of godless secular direction that that is, in fact, one of the conflicts we're seeing, and I think it's very fundamental. Do you see Donald Trump as a standard bearer for the nation-state in opposition to the forces of globalism? I do, and I think he, more fundamentally, you know, he uh, was raised in uh, a church in Manhattan that was Norman Vincent Peale, 
who um, was very influential in the 50s, wrote the um, you know, Power of Positive Thinking, and was you know strong Christian faith. Uh, you can see Donald Trump even moving our embassy to Jerusalem. Strong tradition in Judeo-Christian tradition. That's considered by many, including me, to have been a biblical decision, similar to when Harry Truman voted, decided to allow the United Nations to have uh, Resolution 181, which was the partition of Palestine, to create Israel. And even at that time, the State Department and the person of George Marshall, who was the leading commander for Franklin Roosevelt in World War II in the United States, uh, he was then Secretary of State for Harry Truman, and Marshall said if Truman allowed Israel to be created, he would never vote for another Democrat. And uh, Truman said, well, do what you have to do. He, it, that was another strong decision. And Truman looked like he was going to lose in 48. There's that famous picture where Truman is holding up the Chicago Tribune. He's saying that the paper says Dewey beats Truman. And actually, Truman had this whistle-stop train campaign, campaign very strong, and beat Dewey that nobody expected. And uh, I think Trump is again in that kind of situation. He uh, you know, has done some strong things for Israel. He has um, clearly challenged the outsourcing uh, to China, which now is at, in the wake of COVID-19, with us realizing even our pharmaceuticals come from China. Uh, I think there's been massive re-engineering of this internationalist global agenda. And uh, Trump has led that charge. In the United States, I think there's a substantial, if not a majority, of Americans who have not seen the benefits that were promised to globalism, except to uh, the elite and the multinational corporations. All right, we're going to take a quick time out. You mentioned uh, Truman and the whistle stop. FDR had the fireside chats, the radio, and I suppose uh, Trump has Twitter. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side with Jerome Corsi, the author of The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're back with Jerome Corsi, CorsiNation.com, Corsi, C-O-R-S-I, Nation.com. And uh, the book is The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. So this intelligence plot to get rid of Trump, even before he was uh, sworn in, begins in 2015. Obviously, that doesn't happen. He withstands or perseveres through the, uh, the Mueller probe, the Russian hoax, the Ukrainian hoax. Now we have COVID-19. To what extent was that simply seized upon by the globalists and the progressive elements of the Democratic Party? And to what extent was it created? Well, I think there are two different questions. Uh, the, uh, I think the increasingly the initial story in Wuhan that this came from a wet market where bats were bat soup, uh, that was clearly disinformation because the photographs shown to prove that were from Indonesia. A particular market in Wuhan does not have bats in it or bat soup. 
And I think the analyses of the genome of the virus show that it was created in a laboratory, not naturally occurring in nature. And again, that's not been established because many of these articles get criticized and uh, get withdrawn. But I think the genome of it is, is pretty clear in the analysis I've done of it. At any rate, uh, when the virus hit, uh, the, it was clearly exploited by the um, hard left globalists who said, well, let's just shut down the country. I mean, and, and you have to look at the CDC, our Centers for Disease Control, and the National Institute of Health. They're not government organizations as such. They are 501c3 partnerships, tax-deferred partnerships with public-private sectors to them, and uh, they're only quasi-governmental. They take a lot of foundation money from Big Pharmacy, from the Gates Foundation, and people like Fauci have, and the other senior MDs or physicians on staff end up getting patents on disease treatments, and millions of dollars are paid to those patents when Big Pharmacy develops medications. So clearly they opposed a hydroxychloroquine zinc, a very cheap medication that has seemingly worked around the world. I've even got a tele-MD program on my website. I don't sell hydroxychloroquine, but we can get you interviews with doctors who can prescribe it if you need it, including for prevention. Russia is getting enough hydroxychloroquine for the entire population. And what we did was we quarantined and shut down the economy, which, you know, brought an end, at least temporarily, to Donald Trump's ragingly good economy, which the Democrats did not want him to run on. And typically, in a health emergency, you quarantine the sick. You don't quarantine the healthy. And I, I'm not even clear that there's good science that demonstrates that this prevented lives, especially when governors like Cuomo put COVID-19 patients inside nursing homes, which, again, I think is unconscionable, but it seems to serve a political agenda. And, uh, you know, the hard left, I don't think, has the value for life and considers these people old and they're going to die anyway. In fact, Cuomo virtually said that. So I think it was played, the COVID-19, by the hard left as a political agenda, and, and the governors, the Democratic governors, still are reluctant to open the states. If they can get voting by mail, uh, again, that's been demonstrated to be very unreliable, especially with absentee ballots collected by anyone in the United States. They can be easily forged or this vote harvesting uh, when you have provisional ballots that are accepted after the election is over and say, how many do we need in order to swing elections? So I think this whole Democratic Party reaction to the virus is clearly an assault on Trump. To what extent is, I mean, we, we hear so much about Russian collusion, but we never hear about Chinese collusion and the Chinese efforts to uh, to hack into government agencies and steal data and so forth of, of government employees. To what extent do you think is the the radical left, the progressive element of the Democratic Party, colluding with China in all of this? Because obviously China has much to lose with a Trump presidency. Well, clearly, I mean, going back to the Clinton presidency, there were clear ties where Bill Clinton was accepting campaign contributions from China. There were even some prosecutions on it. The, I think the Johnny Chung case is one I remember distinctly. But the, uh, you know, the 
the the openness to China and, and trying to allow China to you know to have these unfair trade agreements. China's acted like a mercantilist country, even in the World Health Organization, which is supposed to be a free trade organization. And uh, China's not been disciplined, but that's been by Republican and Democratic Party presidents alike until Donald Trump. Donald Trump's the first one who applied discipline to China, and I don't think China has received it very well. In fact, I think it has put China in a difficult position. In this book, I say, in the plan to remove Donald Trump, I'd say China, at a last stage to get rid of Donald Trump, would actually go to war with the United States uh, because China itself is going to face a internal revolution uh, over famine in the country by the end of this year. The economy of China is truly very fragile, and uh, the economic damage done by the tariffs and the ending of outsourcing the United States to China, I think has been very ec- economically detrimental to China, and China's retaliating. I think they're very, very much more in an aggressive position towards the United States right now than they were um, under the Obama administration, where they seemed to get all the advantages they wanted. It was a, a rather sad, disturbing display to see Democrats and many in the media applauding the uh, the cratering of the U.S. economy, the big hit to the stock market, which has subsequently bounced back. We had those tremendous May job numbers, 2.5 million new jobs, despite projections of job losses. Do you see a sort of a V-shaped recovery that, that may end up rescuing Trump's election chances? Well, I think you've hit on why the Democratic governors are so reluctant to open up these states quickly. Uh, some states like Georgia are doing quite well economically. Uh, a few states never closed down out in the West. And New York and New Jersey are still largely closed down. Uh, it's also having a massive impact on New York. I mean, um, New York, it, people are uh, leaving New York in droves, just like they're leaving Seattle. And uh, they're not going to pay the expensive rents in New York when you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to a theater, you can't go to a museum, and people are paying outrageous rents. The vacancy in New York has really skyrocketed, and I expect it's going to have impact on the value of property in New York that will be fairly devastating to the city. And again, we've got a leftist governor and mayor, and the de Blasio, uh, the city's becoming increasingly unsafe. This war against the police, the defunding the police, uh, I think the you know, police any day in any interaction with a minority could not only lose their career, but could be indicted for a very serious crime. I mean, who's going to respond to situations where the officer is going to say, I'm, not, I'm just not going to answer that call. When I get there, I'm not going to do anything. And you're seeing a, a very big spike in shootings and in violence uh, in cities like New York, Chicago. And, and people are questioning, are we ever going to reopen our businesses? Are we, you know, why are we staying here in New York? So th- there's some long-term, you say, a V-shaped recovery. I think the United States economy will respond quickly. Uh, I'm not sure it'll ever be quite the same. Now people have learned that they can work much more effectively remotely 
and I think we're going to see new work configurations coming out. And uh, I think we'll see if the Democrats are going to control the cities, uh, they're going to become increasingly unsafe and undesirable. I mean, one of the boomerang effects is with the Antifa and Black Lives Matter in the streets and the tearing down of monuments, and, you know, repeat of what went on in the Arab Spring, uh, the same kind of dynamics of these extreme leftists, the, you know, the, the Maoist tactics. Uh, and people are saying, this is the future. Do they want to live in this future? So, I mean, the Democratic Party is running its 2020 presidential campaign, and it looks to me like violence in the streets, uh, extortion of businesses. I mean, this is the mafia shakedown routine. They come to Black Lives Matter comes to a major corporation and say, you know, we really like your retail stores, all these hamburgers place, places you have, but uh, if you don't take a knee to Black Lives Matter and pay us millions of dollars, we may just not be able to stop people from burning them down and spray-painting them all over the place. I don't think you'll have a business. Jerome, I've got to and jump that's in here. happening right now. I've got to jump in. We'll take a quick time out, come back, and uh, continue our discussion. The plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency. Author Jerome Corsi stays with us on The Conspiracy Show. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Jerome, before we proceed, how do we get a copy of the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency? Well, thank you, Richard. It's on CorsiNation.com, C-O-R-S-I Nation.com. And it's a ebook. I've got several ebooks, including one there on COVID twenty, which I think is the new virus that's already been released in China. And um, uh, and the e- ebooks are easily download downloaded, and uh, you can read them the same day. They're designed to be um, packed with information, but you know easy to read. And uh, and they're, they're doing quite well. I think this is the new format. The bookstores aren't even open in the United States, so one way to sell books is to do these e-books that are very, very current. You don't have to wait to publish the hardcover, which takes six months or longer to get into bookstores. Uh, this, I think, is the future. And I'm seeing changes in what I do uh, as a investigative reporter and an author. And I'm sure these changes are going to be extensive throughout the U.S. economy. Uh, during the last segment, you, we touched upon the uh, the racial unrest, the the uh, protesting, the looting, the rioting going on uh, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, to what extent was that coordinated, uh, or at least seized upon, to take Donald Trump down? Well, it's, this has been a model. It's, I point out in this book the plan. You know, to take to remove Donald Trump from the presidency, the, the the people who are architecting on the left, these are just they've known and understood the use of violence and protests in order to cause a change in government, a coup d'état. They understood the techniques of these, and you can see a pattern. So, for instance, you take the Arab Spring, in fact, Tahir Square in Egypt, and you had the same kind of protest that was prolonged, or Maidan. In, uh, in in Ukraine, Soros was involved in both of these types of operations. And it, the violence comes in, and these people, the protesters, occupy an area of the city, and they stay. 
And then at some point, they're portrayed as peaceful protesters, and the media supports them and their cause, uh, but they're trying to topple Mubarak, or trying to topple Yanukovych in Ukraine. Then the violence intensifies. Uh, somehow or other, there's an incident. Uh, so, you know, some of the protesters were, account- were accosted by supporters of Mubarak, who come into Tehar Square, even riding camels. And now there's the police come in to try to get control, or even the military police, and the violence escalates. There are shootings. The police start shooting some of the crowd. There's burnings. Uh, there's and Maidan snipers killed 50 of the protesters. And the protesters said, well, the, no one never really knew who the snipers were. Uh, they could easily have been a, a false flag. They weren't found. But they were blamed on Yanukovych. And, and Maidan Square went intensely crazy. So I'm just waiting for an incident with Black Lives Matters uh, that is blamed on white supremacists, and the violence escalates at a level that will be extremely intense, because there really are not, uh, uh, the evidence of white supremacists in the United States is really not extensive. You know, David Duke is largely older these days and doesn't have a big movement. Uh, I think in the United States, by and large, uh, racial equality is accepted, and now this whole intensifying of the racial antagonism over incidents between police and and blacks who are unarmed who get killed, there's only 10 or 15 of those incidents any time in the United States an entire year. Uh, The vast majority of deaths of blacks by violence is blacks killing blacks. And the statistics are there. And yet when one of these incidents occurs, they are shocking. And uh, even Obama was sending in Eric Holder to Ferguson, Attorney General, who said that clearly it, the police were wrong in the shooting of Michael Brown. Well, it turned out Officer Darren Wilson, when he shot Michael Brown, Michael Brown was not a big kid, a gentle giant, hands up, don't shoot. He just robbed a convenience store. He was walking in the middle of the street. The officer was trying to get him out of the middle of the street. Michael Brown charged the officer, struggled for trying to get the officer's gun, and was killed in the altercation. The officer was never charged with the crime. But the narrative, the taking of that incident, the sending of Holder into um, into Ferguson with a you know an inflammatory statement that the police were wrong. Uh, Soros has been funding for 20 years groups to defund the police on the on the charge that we're an incrimination nation. This, these don't happen if you look at the funding and the left's movements. These are very very organized and they follow patterns. And yet they are presented by the media as being peaceful protesters with a just cause. Uh, I remember Martin Luther King. I'm old enough to have seen Martin Luther King. He was for equal rights. This this movement, which is surprisingly dominated by white protesters, is for, again, another form of racism, having whites take a knee to African Americans. Now, that's not going to solve racial tension in the world. What's going to solve racial tension in the world is the way Martin Luther King wanted to go. We'll take one final time out, come back and uh, finish our discussion with Jerome Corsi, the author of The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. Back with more in a moment. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
We are back with Jerome Corsi, CorsiNation.com. And the book is The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. To what extent do you think that this coordinated social unrest, protesting, rioting, looting has been overplayed and will in fact play into Trump as the law and order president and thus rather than hurt his chances will increase his chances for re-election? I I think uh, it is already boomeranging in the sense that uh, I'm saying you've just seen the Democratic future. They're running in the streets the Democrats' 2020 presidential campaign. And if this is the future you want, you know, occupy in this autonomous zone in uh, Seattle. Well, they've just had another set of shootings. I mean, there's people, and, and you can't, the ambulance can't get in. The police aren't coming in. And you've got a lawless, the, even the people who live there are being terrorized. Now, Americans are looking at this saying, if this is what the Democrats are doing to our cities, and the governor and the mayor said, tear down the statues, and we don't want this history. I mean, you know, I don't have a Confederate statue in my home, but, you know, I, and I don't want one. But the point is, I still respect the fact that the Civil War was fought, and I don't want to erase history. Nations that begin erasing their history going down this completely Marxist or Maoist. I mean, this was done in the Cultural Revolution. We, we need to understand history. We're not captive to history. And we need to celebrate the fact that social injustice was corrected in the United States. I think this nation has done more for recognizing all peoples of all races on equal basis than any country has ever done in the history of the world. And I, this, I think, needs to be celebrated. And when we start rewriting and destroying history, what's next? Well, okay, we get rid of the Confederate statues. Now they're getting rid of Teddy Roosevelt statues, even Lincoln statues. Well, why don't we get rid of the flag? Because, you know, the the Constitution and and the Marxist interpretation was written by slaveholders. Well, even that was recognized at the time of the founding as a problem that they couldn't solve, but they were going to have to solve. And the Civil War was recognized widely as, you know, the, the crime being paid for with another massive war, one of the most bloody in American history. And at the end of that war, watch Steven Spielberg's film on Lincoln. You'll never be told that the senators and congressmen who wanted the 13th Amendment passed to give equal rights, rights to blacks, those were the Republicans. The Democrats were the slaveholders. The Democrats were the ones who fought the Civil War to keep slavery. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Right. You won't hear that. Right. But we need to have history be understood, and this idea of destroying history. You know, people look at it and say, the next thing you know, you can have Antifa running my town. I mean, I did an interview today and this week in West Virginia. They're saying, well, they're not here. So, well, they're going to be there. Because their intention is to be in your neighborhood and to, you know, they're going to go across the whole country. It's what they did in the Cultural Revolution. It's these little red books and these, you know, the Maoists in the streets say they destroyed an entire group of intellectuals. They destroyed an entire generation in, in China that was the culture and established it with this chaos where they were throwing people, you know, beating old women. Uh, the, the brutality of this, if this is the Democratic Party's 2020 presidential election, I think Americans are seeing it that, 
I don't see anybody. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't have a chance. Joe Biden won't come out of his basement. Looks so, like he's already got dementia. If this right. plan fails, what is left in the left's arsenal to take down President Trump? Well, I see, you know, it's going it, to this is going to continue with more and more all the way until the election. And I, I see we've now got, you know, the the generals have come out and said that they don't think that President Trump is respecting the rights of the protesters. And so is the military insubordinate? They're beginning to question uh, General Kelly, who was the White House chief of staff, said that maybe Donald Trump isn't stable. And now you got John Bolton this week. We've got Bolton week. He's written a book and saying he disagrees with President Trump's leadership style, and he never knew what he was going to say in a meeting. Well, John Bolton, I've known for 15 years. He's only ever wanted to bomb Iran and was the one who told everybody that we had weapons of mass destruction when Saddam Hussein got George W. Bush to invade Iraq, which I thought was a bad idea. I still think it was a terrible idea. And I don't want to go to war with Iran. I think war is the problem in the Middle East, not the solution. And who who cares what John... I think John Bolton was the problem. I'm glad he's gone. And, you know, we don't need warmongers. What President Trump is trying to do with economic sanctions and uh, trying to carve a peace in the Middle East where, again, people are questioning, do we want to live under this radical Islamic terrorism? Even I see protests going on in Syria where people are saying enough of this. They, you know, Finally, I think reasonable people decide the world torn up by an angry left with an agenda that's, that's, that is based on this insanity that we shouldn't have history, that we shouldn't have God, that we that everything is racist, that everybody's a racist, we should kneel to blacks. I mean, this, you know, extortion of the major corporations, burning down cities. Uh, you go to New York City, who's going to go back into New York City under de Blasio? This, the stores are all boarded up. The, the, the shops have been burned. And Antifa is still in the streets. Who's even going to walk around New York City, let alone open up New York City to business? Right. Sorry, you mentioned the generals now lining up against Trump. It sounds like they're going to take another run up that 25th Amendment hill. Are they going to try and once again claim that Trump is unfit for office? Are they going to, I don't know, are they going to uh, put a wire on Vice President Mike Pence? How How are they going to try and take down Trump? It's a central part of my book. I say the 25th Amendment's being teed up right now under this argument that Trump is unstable, mentally unstable, never knew what he was going to do at a meeting. Yeah, well, Trump's got a very different style, and there's no nothing in our Constitution that says the president has to have a style that the bureaucracy likes, agrees with their interagency consensus, whatever that means. The State Department isn't even in the Constitution. And I just heard all these bureaucrats in the Ukraine hearings, one after the other, well, he disagreed with our interagency policy on Ukraine. Who cares? Move the State Department to Death Valley. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. Let all these bureaucrats quit. Uh, they now think that the bureaucrats think that they're in charge of the government. The military, Donald Trump's the commander-in-chief. The 25th Amendment, though, I think is in the works because uh, it takes, there's 15 cabinet members that get to vote. And if a majority, which will be eight, vote to remove Donald Trump, there's a long procedure, but I think the idea is to get this process started the same way the Democrats got impeachment started with a trial, actual trial in the Senate. Well, it didn't go anywhere, 
but it was done to destabilize Trump, and I think all it did was solidify Trump's support. Uh, these are extreme measures, and it's, it, these are coup d'etats, and it becomes apparent to people: Do we want to live? We're going to be having the. We're going to be having Antifa. You know, you want to call the police? Antifa is going to show up. They're going to terrorize your family, beat up everybody, spray paint the place, and then make sure it burns down. So just in the minute that remains, would a resounding Trump re-election, coupled with a Republican win in the House and maintaining the majority in the Senate, will that put an end to this coup d'etat? I think the left has gone all in. Like in poker, they put all their chips. This is the hand they want to play. And I think it's before they wanted to make their move and more dramatic. I think they thought they would have Hillary and it would be done gradually. But they're scared that Donald Trump is wins re-election. The coup d'etat traders will face treason charges. Uh, the bureaucracy in this globalism is going to be broken up. Donald Trump's going to have in the second term the ability to make changes that are basic in breaking these multinational corporations and the globalists. Uh, stealing money from the workers of the United States, sending jobs overseas, all of this architecture that really goes back to the end of World War II, United Nations and all forward, Donald Trump's going to deconstruct it. So we're in a final pitch battle as to whether we're going to march forward as a globalist nation in which the vast majority of people are not much better off than serfs and have only rights that the state wants to grant them, where the communist Chinese regime will give you a social score based upon your ideas. I think most Americans don't want to live in that kind of a world. But we're testing that proposition right now. Jerome Corsi, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you again, Richard. Okay, that's it for me. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.